Health 101 is produced by the physicians of the Metro Omaha Medical Society, and we'd like to thank Children's Hospital and Medical Center for their support of this podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Health 101. This is from the Metro Omaha Medical Society, and it is a podcast about health issues that we hope will make you a better patient advocate for yourselves and your loved ones. We hope you'll subscribe. And today we are tackling one of the really controversial issues right now in medicine, and that is vaccines. So the two experts we've brought to you today is Tina Scott Mordhorst, who is a pediatrician, so little guys, and then... Lindsay Northam, who is an internal medicine, so adults. And we're going to run through this conversation because let's talk about the stuff that's making headlines right now. And it is measles outbreaks. We've seen more measles outbreaks in probably a decade, two decades. In fact, I thought we pretty much were cured of measles before we started this. Pretty much it was eliminated in the United States. And now this year, um, the last report from Nebraska that I got was over a thousand cases. I think it's a thousand and one, but it's over a thousand cases and we're only halfway through the year. Now we see in the headlines in other states, they have shut down schools during the school year because of it. They have had their state legislatures look at tightening the opt out. And I know in Nebraska and I know in other states, mostly there are three reasons you can opt out. It's religious, philosophical, or health. I'm assuming there's not a lot of health reasons you can opt out. Not a lot. The, we opt kids out if they're obviously undergoing chemotherapy or if they have an immune deficiency or if they have a parent. That is um, one of those two. Even the religious restrictions um, anymore are limited. Uh, the Catholic schools used to uh, let families opt out of immunizations because of concerns with stem cells and everything else. But everything's so far removed from the original vaccine that even a lot of the the Catholic schools and the parochial schools are saying, no, we want you immunized. Um, And on a philosophical basis, it's really hard to get um, kids out of being immunized as well if they are attending public schools at all. Um, I think our a very large portion of our kids that are not vaccinated are our kids that are homeschooled. So if we have more than a thousand cases of measles or have had, um, and it's those people who are more susceptible, I think as someone who my parents vaccinated me and kept up with it until I was an adult and then they left it in my hands, which now it gets a little spotty, Lindsay. Thank you. So, well, but my question is, so if I'm wandering around the earth and I think there are people surrounding me who have not been vaccinated, at what point do I need to be concerned that I could be under vaccinated for measles? That's a good question. You know, right now, like you said, our hot topic is this measles, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Patients that were born before 1957 are presumed to have innate immunity or have had some sort of exposure. It's over 99% of how many people actually had been exposed. So that patient population generally should feel pretty comfortable when traveling. But if you are born after that time, before we started doing two-dose vaccines, you may be one of the people who might not have as much immunity. In that case, we decide, are you going to an endemic area? However, this day and age, the Bronx is an endemic area. So we're not talking about traveling to other countries or traveling to really underserved areas. In America, we have our own pods now of where these 1,000 people are having measles. And now that some of those areas are considered endemic. So right now, the easiest answers are talk to your doctor. We can check that immunity. We can check blood titers to see where you're sitting. Do you have those antibodies to the measles, the mumps, and the rubella? 
and then decide whether or not you need to have a second vaccine. And quick follow-up question, what's a blood titer? A blood titer would tell you how many antibodies or if you're producing antibodies towards these vaccines in your system. Is it a blood test? It's a blood test, yep. So it's an easy thing that we can set up. Sometimes you can do that during your appointment. Sometimes clinics are setting up as a lab visit with a nurse. But then once we have that information, that can be helpful to tell us whether or not you need to have new vaccines. There are even people out there who have had certain vaccines that still have negative titers, in which case that gives us an opportunity to reboost you or re-update you on those vaccines. Is there a downside to over-immunizing for MMR? You know, I mean, if they don't want to do the blood test and just say, just give me the shot, because I think it's a shot, isn't it? Yeah, it's a shot. The MMR vaccine is very safe. So the CDC recommends if someone does not know their immunization status or if they don't have those childhood records, go ahead and get a new booster. In many places and with many insurance plans, your booster may be the same cost as having the blood work done. So in that sort of setting, it's just as easy to give somebody the vaccine and just assume that now you're going to create those titers naturally. Tina, when you get the parents in who are against vaccination, and I feel like in the last 20 years, that's kind of where this anti-vaccination move is mm-hmm. from people who are really into natural, you know, and wanting to know sourcing. And I know there was also the false belief that the vaccine preservatives were causing things like autism because we were seeing those numbers spike and growing and there was a concern that there was some sort of preservative problem with our vaccines. Tell me what you tell them. Well, and why they, and are those the reasons there? That is part of the reason, yeah. uh, There are a number of people that you know, look at it as a childhood illness. And if they get that illness, then they are 100% protected the rest of their life. So they should just get the illness. Negating the fact that there are many complications that go along with having um, measles or even chicken pox or a number of childhood illnesses. Um, the, the one thing that I like to remind families of in regards to autism, there was one study that was done that everyone kind of hung their, their hat on that um, looked at MMR and accused it essentially of causing autism and linked it to autism. The physician that put that study together and created it, and I believe it was in the Lancet, so it looked authentic, it looked real, he made everything up, made it all up. His data was garbage. It was a lie. And we've spent so much time and money trying to prove that the immunizations didn't cause autism and don't cause autism that I feel badly for families that are dealing with autism because that's a lot of time and money that we haven't been able to use to actually find out what we have um, as a cause for autism. So I remind them that that study was trash. Um, and he is a liar that's probably living in a fancy mansion in London right now on the backs of all of us. Um, I like to reassure families because a lot of families, if they're not concerned about, or they're not wanting their kids to have natural immunity and they're not concerned about autism, they're concerned about giving babies too many immunizations at one time because their immune system is immature And it's a lot for a baby to have. First of all, we're immunizing against um, illnesses that babies are the highest risk. Infants, less than two, less than five. That's when we get the bulk of our immunizations. And they're most at risk for any kind of bad outcomes. 
So we want to get them immunized because we need to protect them. Secondly, we're kind of taking advantage of their immune system because we want them to seroconvert. So there's a reason that we give vaccines when we give vaccines. We want, we, we want them to procure immunity to the illness. So I, I reassure them there's a reason we do it that way. And yeah, it does seem like we're giving kids a lot of shots, but there's a reason we do it. I let them know that the study that linked autism with the MMR was made up. And in regards to thimerosal, we don't even put that in vaccines anymore. It is in some flu shots. And if you don't want a flu shot with thimerosal in it, you just tell your physician, we can get vaccines without thimerosal in it. Otherwise, the preservatives aren't an issue. Um, I have a handful of parents that are just legitimately, well, not legitimately, but they are worried about the, the preservative piece because of heavy metals. I reassure them that that's not the case. Um, it sometimes takes a lot of education, and it sometimes takes several visits. Uh, I think, you know, I think reassurance, I get a fair number of families that refuse to vaccinate to e vaccinate eventually, or at least vaccinate against illnesses that um, are most concerning um, at the time or the age of their child. But it's, it's tricky. And I feel badly because they are getting information from sources that they think are reliable. And there's a lot of guilt that goes with, you know, parenting and making those decisions for your child. Well, there's also a lot of attacks for mm -hmm. having positions of, you know, I look at stories that I hear about doctors getting attacked on Twitter and on Facebook because they say something about vaccinations and they get, you know, um, that parents are very, very um, opinionated and very kind of set in their right. opinions. Well, and I feel badly for the parents that are getting attacked by other parents. Um, I have... I have a, a, a friend who um, homeschools and vaccinates her children, but she actually has minimal conversation with her other homeschooling friends about this because of their opinions about her vaccinating her children. It's it's kind of it's it, it's kind of unfortunate. It's a really uncomfortable situation to put a lot mm -hmm. of different people in. Mm -hmm. Okay, Lindsay, this one's for you because so. A lot of us did grow up having chicken pox. That, that was our immunity system. But now we have the shingles as an adult, and I know that there's now a new reiteration of a shingles vaccine that's supposed to be even better. But I guess the question is, I thought vaccines, by definition, prevented you from ever getting something. And why doesn't it? So the shingles vaccine is a little bit of a different type of vaccine. If you had chicken pox, especially as a child, you will always have that virus in you. That zoster virus will live in you. What's interesting about shingles is that that virus one day will decide to creep out. It'll crawl along a nerve in your body and follow what we call the dermatome, so the pattern of that nerve. It initially starts with pain. Eventually, most people develop a blistering rash. The biggest complication, other than the rash, is sometimes that chronic pain never alleviates. Nerve pain is complicated. It's hard to predict, and it's hard to decide where it's going to go. So with the shingles vaccine, the shingles vaccine is aimed at preventing that secondary outbreak of the zoster again later in life, but more specifically is also prevented the chronic pain that can associate with that, what we call the post-herpetic neuropathy. So the pain that you can get after that sometimes may never go away. 
So the old shingles vaccine we had, the Zostavax, was a nice vaccine, but it had its limitations. It was really only about 50% effective in most patients and was what was called a live vac virus vaccine, which is similar to the MMR. So in that setting, you have a limited amount of people who can get that vaccine, people, again, who are in chemotherapy, people who have suppressed immune systems, or people that have various medical reasons to not have a live virus were not able to be vaccinated. It also did cause some complications in someone who maybe had a vaccine has to limit their exposure to someone who has not been vaccinated against chickenpox or had exposure for a finite amount of time. The new vaccine series is called Shingrix. This is a two-dose. It's called a conjugated vaccine. So the two doses are meant to kind of enhance each other. So you have the first vaccine, you get the second one about two to six months later in order to help kind of boost that immunity even more. The research on the new vaccine has shown approximately about a 90% or more effectiveness rate. So primarily, again, kind of aimed at that post-herpetic neuralgia, but also at just the advent of the vax or the rash outbreak to begin with. It's, it's a lovely vaccine. Um, its uh, biggest problem right now, though, is that the, the age requirement for this vaccine has dropped. So previously, we were vaccinating patients older, older than 60. The Shingrix vaccine now is indicated down to the age 50. And the entire world is trying to get revaccinated. The vaccine's not made in America, so it's also we have to ship it over in order to keep our stocks intact. In so most pharmacies this past year have had a little bit of a hard time keeping it in stock, but more recently we're starting to see it show back on the shelves. So if someone wasn't able to get the vaccine previously, try again, check with your pharmacy, get on a list. And uh, more recently we've been having more people have been able to get updated on that immunization status. Probably one question we get a lot, though, too, is that if you've had that Zostavax, the original vaccine, the CDC is still recommending that you have a second or that you do the, do the shingles or Shingrix series as opposed to just leaving it at the Zostavax. So you're still you have the indication to do the second series. And when it comes to these vaccines, especially that some that start in childhood then need to be followed up as an adult, vice versa, what are we trying to achieve? Because it's about this hurt, it's about a certain percentage you need, right, in order to not just protect yourself? Right. You, we want herd immunity is what we want, because that's how we protect the folks that may have um, some waxing and waning immunity, uh, people that are immunosuppressed, people that are going through chemotherapy, the very young and the very old. And so the more people we immunize um, and the less we see of the disease, right, the less exposure that our vulnerable population is going to have to the disease. So it, there is a little bit of a social responsibility that goes with immunizing. And also, thank you so much to Children's Hospital and Medical Center for supporting this podcast. This podcast is generously supported by Children's Hospital and Medical Center. Children's is the only full-service pediatric health center in Nebraska, providing expertise in more than 50 pediatric specialty services to children across the region and beyond. It is home to Nebraska's only Level 4 newborn intensive care unit and the only Level 2 pediatric trauma center. Nationally, Children's is recognized as a best children's hospital by U.S. News & World Report. To meet the growing demand for high-quality pediatric services, Children's is growing to better serve more children and families. Its new clinical facility, the Hubbard Center for Children, opens in 2021. Learn more at childrensomaha.org. And let's talk about what I think gets a lot of attention in terms of effectiveness, because as people assume that if you immunize, but we have seen a few years where the flu vaccine has not 
done what it's supposed to do and the outbreaks have been severe nonetheless. That is a whole complicated issue of how you create a flu vaccine. Are we getting any closer to improving that process? Because it's it's almost like I would joke that it's almost like a meteorologist trying to predict weather ahead of the schedule six months in advance because you're really not sure what that formula is going to be. Am I not right? You're correct. The flu vaccine is a complicated topic. The flu vaccine is what we call quadrivalent vaccine. So every year, the science tries to predict what are the strains that we're going to see in the area. So four different strains are picked and put in the vaccine, but it is a moving target. Flus, they they mutate, they change. You know, an influenza virus shares the same structure with another influenza virus, but very quickly we can see that change. A good example is when H1N1 came through. We didn't anticipate that change. We didn't know that was going to happen. So the vaccine around that time was not prepared to handle that. Now, that being said, yeah, science is changing. Science is getting better, but it takes time. And again, trying to predict those disease patterns. When you picked the disease disease pattern and how to decide what goes into this vaccine, they look at kind of the waves that go through the world. Disease travels. Disease kind of starts, influenza starts around Asia and uh, even, even Europe and kind of cycles our way. So that gives us a little bit of a heads up to say what we might see coming our way. But again, if the virus mutates, we're not prepared for that. But still get the vaccine. If you get the vaccine, you still have some protection. You still have some coverage against an influenza virus. You may not be as sick as you would have been otherwise. You may be able to still protect other people. The hardest part about the flu is you can have the influenza for several days even before you start to develop symptoms that would alert you to the fact that you're sick. Wash your hands, stop spreading disease, you know, stay away from other people, but at the same time, back to the concept of herd immunity. I very bluntly often say to people, it's not about you. You know, you're not licking doorknobs on the way out of my office. You're going to be washing your hands. My patients do. Yours might. Yours, yours, yeah. yours might. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah that often. That, that, that may be anticipated. <laughs> this, might, this might not roll for those patients. But at the same time, you know, I tell people, I can take care of you. If you get the flu and you didn't get the flu vaccine, or if you did and we had breakthrough strains, but I don't know how to take care of you when you give the three-year-old down the street with leukemia influenza. I don't know how to help you when you kill your best friend's nana. You know, that is that is the real blunt truth of herd immunity. You have to vaccinate the healthy to protect the ill and the rest of the herd that can't necessarily be vaccinated. So even in the absence of perfect science for influenza vaccines, there is still always an indication, unless there's a contraindication like an, like a, a, an allergic reaction or something. But again, most clinics, I know ours is preservative-free influenza shots. All of ours are. So there's there's a lot of reasons to really just kind of let down your guard, get your vaccines. So then let's talk about HPV because that is the new, that is probably the newest vaccine in terms of children that we're still trying to really get people to think about because it's not vaccine in the way you kind of think about it because it's such a protectant for a cancer later on, as opposed to an an STD and right that you, and I don't know how to explain that. Well, so I, Gardasil or HPV, we have a lot of conversations and frequent conversations. I probably talk about it more in my clinic than pretty much any other vaccine. Um, first, I like to remind everyone, it, everybody thinks it's new. It's been around for 15 years. Um, 
It is a it's a safe vaccine. There's a lot of information out on social media and the internet about the dangers of the HPV vaccine. But when you really start looking at the information that's out there, um, there's really no correlation, uh, with the exception of syncopal episodes um, of side effects with HPV. Um, there's a lot of fear around HPV. Um, and then, of course, you have exactly what you said. You know, we're immunizing kids that are under 15. They need two immunizations six months apart. They can get it over 15, but then they need three immunizations. Um, we're immunizing kids before sexual acti activity. And when you start talking about sexual activity in people's children around the age of 10, everybody gets a little, not everybody, I, I've got some, you know, with a lot of parents, probably most of them are very open to it, um, at least having that conversation because of the vaccine. But it, it gets kind of uncomfortable for some families. We're not protecting from sexually transmitted illness. We are protecting from cancers, and not just cervical cancer. Penile cancer is an actual thing. You say that to a boy <laughs> and he wants a shot. Um, head and neck cancers happen. These are, these are real problems that we can actually save our kids from having to deal with when they are 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. And so I, I, when, I'm, when I'm dealing with a somewhat resistant family, I, I like to ask them, if I, had a, if I had a shot to protect your child from lung cancer, would you let me give that to them? Well, of course. Why can't I protect them from head and neck cancer? Wait, why can't I get the shot now? <laughs> <laughs> well, the indications are changing. So when the vaccine first came out, the age was, really it was kind of young adults. Mm -hmm. Over the years now we've seen it drop lower, now down to children even under 15. More recently, the indications are suggesting we might be able to increase up to about 46. The CDC recommendation right now for this year still stands at uh, 20, 26 years old. Uh, it's a little bit higher for uh, men who have sex with men, but for most insurance companies, most recommendations right now are up to 26. But in the next couple of years, we probably will see that start to advance. We'll probably see it start up to at least mid-40s. That being said, it's not a vaccine that would hurt you. So when you talk about indications and you talk about insurance coverage, it's still up to you if you wanted to cash pay for a vaccine. I don't think anything I, – honestly, I don't think I would fault anybody for that. So, you know, all of us at the table here are, are older than the age from when, when the vaccine came out. So none of us have been vaccinated at the moment. But as that starts to change, I think that plenty of men and women are going to change their, their, their minds about whether or not to get that vaccine as an adult. I feel like parents are very conscientious about vaccinations, you know, because it's their children. And so they'll keep track and they make checklists and they do all that sort of thing. Okay, the minute you get to adulthood and this is your thing to, you know, now, God forbid, you I don't even remember what I had for lunch yesterday, much less when I last got anything, you know, and it becomes such a lost. So if you were to tell your patients, or how do you help them keep track? I mean, you obviously do because you have your medical records. And as long as you get them and they stay with you for this period of time, but how do you just tell these people that they need to, this, this stuff needs to be on their mind, they need to percolate with this and need to live with this a little more? You know, I think that 
as physicians, we spend a lot of time thinking about this ourselves. And so when we're doing an annual physical exam, we're going through what are your age appropriate guidelines? You know, are you due for colonoscopy? Are you due for mammogram? When was your last tetanus shot? So for us, it just becomes a daily habit to bring that up with patients. And you're right. A lot of times I'll ask someone, when did you have your last tetanus shot? Either I have no idea or I stepped on a nail last year. But a lot of times, you know, especially patients under 64, a tetanus shot also includes pertussis, so whooping cough. So a lot of times if you can't get someone to get a tetanus shot, you can remind them this is your whooping cough vaccine, and very quickly they'll change their mind. But to be really honest, you know, we, we, we do, if we just had to rely on ourselves, we would forget that stuff too. The electronic medical record is very helpful. You know, every system in town is very different, but in our own system – that auto-populates. It says, you have a 50-year-old male. This is what he's due for. These are the things. And when we can use our EMR to our advantage, although often we talk about the disadvantages, but when we use it to our advantage, we can help keep track of these things. People don't have to keep that paper card in their purse that says when they had their last tetanus shot because I can keep track of it. And a lot of times if we can contact pharmacies, if we can contact old uh, occupational health clinics, or if we can talk, contact pediatricians, we can get that information. So really, it's a team effort. You know, patients should know I'm not out of the range for any vaccines, but the physicians too. We need to take ownership of that and help our patients kind of guide through that history and keeping track. You don't give your parents a card anymore. Do they still have, they don't? The, the cards exist, and I have a few parents that really like to have that card in their purse. Um, but we don't hand them out the way we used to. Passports is what we used to call them. Yeah, and they just in the olden days, like they yeah. pulled them out of the purse yeah. because when you have to go to school, so when you're about to send your little one to kindergarten, first grade, you have to provide something as a physician, right? They need for in the state of Nebraska for kindergarten and seventh grade, they need a physical, a phys so they'll need a physical done. They get a physical form, and then we obviously do their immunizations and print out an immunization record. So they have that all to, with them when they go to school. Should parents be also keeping track? You know, I, the one nice, I, I agree, there are a lot of complaints about the electronic record, um, but the one good thing it does do is it keeps records. Um, so parents, I, I don't encourage them to keep a list or keep a paper copy. If they want to and they're more comfortable with that, that's fine. Um, they should always have access, uh, you know, through our clinic, through children's physicians clinics, um, we have Children's Connect, and so they can get online and see their immunizations anytime they want. So I, they probably don't need to carry a paper. Plus, as, uh, the schools keep their records for a while as well. So if you're running around and you're 23 years old and you're wondering when your last tetanus shot was and you can't remember, you can always call the high school you went to, and they may be able to pull it up for you and tell you. So high school assistants, in hearing this, is now freaking out because they do not want the 40-year-old <laughs> alums Sorry. to be like, um, can you was? tell me when I was in seventh grade, what did I have? <laughs> so they're hating you yeah, right now. Well, too. You know, they all love me anyway. So. <laughs> tell me what your pet peeve is about patients and vaccines. Do you have a pet peeve? I... You know, the, I think probably all of us are going to see the Google. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Dr. Google. Dr. Google. But um, my personal pet peeve is when someone tells me they don't believe in a vaccine. Well, you don't have to believe in unicorns. You, you can say <laughs> they exist, right? right? Absolutely. You, know, you can say you don't trust the data. You can say you don't feel comfortable with them. You can say, please educate me more. But don't tell me you don't believe in, in this tangible liquid I have in a syringe mm. in front of me. Mm -hmm. This is a real thing. There's real science. And, you know, it, 
it's our job to educate our patients, but it's not necessarily our job to give them their advanced degrees in biochemistry. And so sometimes you just can't get to the root cause to under, or the root explanation of what is the real science behind this because not everybody is prepared to understand that type of information. So if you don't believe in your vaccine, at least believe in me. You know, believe that I wouldn't give you something yeah, that I didn't feel was safe or something I wouldn't do for my own family. So that's probably well, my that's, biggest. I, yeah, I would agree because you know they they come in to to get our opinions. We don't, you know, suck them in with a vacuum. The door <laughs> swings and they walk in. And so um, I, I agree when you when when I'm talking and and I, I don't. If people don't want to vaccinate their children, I promise that I will educate them. I can't force them to, and I'm not going to judge them or I'm not going to fire them if they don't because I need to take care of their kids. Someone needs to take care of their kids. But if they don't believe in immunizations, then that is a, a trust thing because I believe in them. Um, I, I, I believe strongly in them. I think that um, they're remarkable and I would hate to... I'm old enough that I saw chickenpox uh, repercussions, and I saw Hib the, resu the results of Haemophilus influenza B through residency, and and these are terrifying childhood illnesses. Air quotes. Um, I w I would never do that to my child, so I would never do that to someone else's child. Well, and even now, you go into the hospital and you see the kids who didn't get the pertussis. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's bad. Which, of note, I have to say, hospitals have gotten really good in the, when parents have babies, of immunizing parents, too. So that gets a pertussis in there, which makes me super happy. But, yeah. Yeah. You see people. And you see the kids that get sick are the ones that are unimmunized or underimmunized. And it's sad when you've got a six-month-old who can't breathe. God, that's a terrifying sight. Oh, it's awful. And you sit and you can't do much about it. It's not like I can give them, you know, even if I treat pertussis, they're going to cough and be sick for months. Oh. So explain that to a baby. Right. I do talk to babies, but they don't talk back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the joy, but they're listening. They're listening. I'm right. Sure. Isn't that what the little brains are doing? <laughs> listening. Should I know anything else? Because what are we learning about vaccines? Because now we are starting to see vaccines for cancer, vaccines for, you know, I mean, is that really the way forward? Is it's going to be in vaccine form? Yeah. Science is starting to find ways to use your body's inherent immunity using, you know, a lot of new medications even are aimed at the biologic therapies and ways to work your own antibodies. So we're going to see great things, you know, and, and the perfect example, again, is the HPV. Mm -hmm. You know, you identify the source, you identify a way to prevent things, you identify how to vaccinate against cancer. So eventually over time, I don't think any of us would be surprised if we start to see some major advancements based upon vaccines. And how easy would my job be if everybody just got vaccinated in, in Tina's right. clinic and then I didn't have to deal with any of it anymore? It's great. Well, and <laughs> I, I will agree that the science that is happening right now, I think sooner rather than later, we're going to see like a real change and shift on the, in the way things are happening and in, in the immunizations and uh, drugs that are available mm -hmm. to patients. It's kind of geeky science cool. It is. It's really <laughs> exciting. Yeah. <laughs> And the geeky scientists are celebrating. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much. I think hopefully people got a lot of food for thought. They'll certainly 
be more educated on this topic because that's really what we want. We want to protect the people who can't protect themselves, but we also want to protect your families. So I think Tina and Lindsay, you really gave a lot of them arguments and viewpoints that they may not have heard or that they didn't really know what to sift out and sift in intake and outtake. So thank you guys both. We hope that all of you out there will listen to this podcast and subscribe to the others. And thank you all for joining us. If you need help finding a physician, go to omahamedical.com and use our find a physician search. And also thank you so much to Children's Hospital and Medical Center for supporting this podcast. A Parkville Media Production. The information shared in this podcast is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the presenters and do not represent the thoughts, advice, or opinions of the Metro Omaha Medical Society. The information contained in this podcast should not serve as the basis for any medical treatment and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical advice. Before making changes to your health care plan or a loved one's, always consult with a health care professional.